the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Justin. Happy Halloween. Almost. Hey, Lindsay. Happy almost Halloween. Uh, we continue our uh, our happy month of October celebration with our second horror movie of the month, and that is 2000's Ginger Snaps. So, so happy we're doing this movie. This has been a, a, a favorite of mine probably going on longer than 15 years, I feel like. I'm fairly new to this movie. Uh, I feel like every Halloween, every October, sometimes I just I go with what's comfortable for me. Like I have my mm-hmm. set of movies that, sure. that I lay out, you know, like you're laying out your new clothes for the first day of school. I'm laying these movies out <laughs> for the month of October. And I'm like, I'm going to hit on all these. These are my favorites, you know, for the beginning of October. And then I'm moving into these. And I felt like, you know, I need to shake this up a little bit. I've been watching kind of the same stuff. So I'm glad that we're, you know, we're, we're branching out. We went for Exorcist 3 and now we're going for Ginger Snaps, which I think is a, a really excellent addition. You know, if, if you haven't heard of this movie or you haven't seen it. I think it's one of those that not only is it going to appeal to people that just love horror movies, but a movie that is a little bit deeper. That's not just all about the jump scares and, and that sort of thing. It challenges what we know about horror movies and what we've become accustomed to, especially around, you know, this time of the month. No pun intended. Oh boy. This movie. <laughs> oh, that's one of the things we'll get into in talking about Ginger Snaps. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie, more than meets the eye. We're going to talk about the script. There's a lot of metaphors in this movie that I think are really out in the open. This isn't a movie that's like hiding behind metaphors, but there's certainly an insinuation uh, throughout the script, uh, you know, we'll talk about how this movie uh, kind of fits in in the history of of the werewolf genre. Oh yeah, also and how it challenges certain tropes that we've become accustomed to in horror films, and how it was specifically designed for that. We'll go into, of course, one of our favorite topics: the cast, the two leads in this movie. Ugh, I got nothing but amazing things to say about them. And we'll talk a little bit about the effects, and then we'll also talk about the sort of release of this movie and how it's become somewhat of a cult classic in some sense of the word. Uh, this is another one of those movies that uh, not a lot of people saw when it came out, but it's it's grown quite a, a rabid fan base since its release 20 years ago. It is certainly in its infancy of what one could say would be a cult film, depending on you know what your definition of what a cult film is, but... You know, we talk about ones from the 80s or 70s, something that's had time to develop into a cult movie. This one fits the bill. We'll we'll go there later. Yeah, we'll get into that. After our discussion on Ginger Snaps, of course, we'll get into our picks of the week. Uh, I stayed with the werewolf genre somewhat, if you consider this a werewolf movie, and that's (laughs) 1981's Wolfen. Yeah, I think that that works. I definitely think so. Um, I went with a, actually I did something kind of crazy. We've, we, Justin, you've done, um, a TV movie before, 
when you did Elvis. But I, I went with a TV miniseries that stars Emily Perkins from Ginger Snaps, and that was 1990s Stephen King's It. I think this is such a great pick. This, this is a TV movie that I think still holds up and is scarier than a lot of not-made-for-TV horror movies. Right, and especially for something that was 30 years ago. It still is pretty scary. But I'd try to not talk for too long on it, but I I mean, it's a, it's a three-plus-hour movie. What, what do you expect? What do you want from me? A monster-sized pick of the week. It is. It is. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment, but before we get into our first clip from... Ginger Snaps, Lindsay, could you just give us a quick lowdown on what the story is, what what's going on with this movie? Out by 16 or dead in the scene, but together forever. That's the main idea behind Ginger Snaps. Two sisters who share an uncommonly close bond, united in their distaste for suburban life and the people they view as sheep around them. Outcasts at school who couldn't care less until a change happens. Is it the onset of puberty that divides them? Or that one of them is attacked and slowly becoming a werewolf. Or maybe both. As a wedge begins to form between them, their bond of sisterhood and loyalty is tested. Together until the very end in this metaphorical tale about how adolescence is a horrific transformation. I think that's a great description of this movie. There's a lot going on in it. I mean, uh, you know, as so many movies that we talk about, but this one is especially loaded. Yeah. A lot of layers. We'll, we'll talk about all that. We're going to go to a clip. We'll be right back. Ginger, why are you rubbing your back? It hurts. Why? Well, um, pain flows up your nerve endings, then snaps this in your brain. She's not funny. How did you hurt it? Being dead. Does it hurt down by your tailbone or is it up higher? Is it, is it tight throughout here? Maybe. Does it ache back here? Might. Oh my God. Do you think it's cramps? <coughs> Give it a rest for two seconds off. Pam, we're eating. Henry, the girls are both three years late menstruating, okay? It's not normal. If it's finally happening. It's not. Honey, it's nothing to be scared of. It's the most normal thing in the world. Maybe it's cancer of the spine. Ginger Ann. Or tuberculosis. See what your attitude does? Or spondylitis. Spondy what? Fuses your vertebrae together. Nice. Bridget, stop it. Have a fit. Well, I've had just about enough of that tone. Well, that makes two of us. Fuck. All right, that's it. To your room. Gladly. Bridget, you are not connected at her wrist. Your father and I have counseling tonight. I don't want you leaving the house. The news says there's still some wild animal on the loose. So before we get into talking about Ginger Snaps itself, I just wanted to hit on the state of werewolf movies. You know, it's a genre that's been around since early, early days of of motion pictures uh, dating back to like, well, I guess the early 40s. There's certainly been some some decent werewolf movies that have been made. There were some werewolf hammer films that were made in the late 60s, early 70s. Man, I grew up on Lon Chaney. Like, I grew up on the Universal Monster movies. 
Yeah, and in all of them, you know, there there was a particular style, and 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 certainly some rules were made uh, of the lore of werewolves. You know, like silver bullets stop a werewolf, and they only change during a full moon, mm-hmm. and they change back to human form. Those rules and that variation kind of stuck with werewolf movies uh, up until about 1981. And that's where I think the bar was raised very, very, very high. And we had American Werewolf in London. We had The Howling. And then we had my pick of the week, which is Wolfen. And there was a real shift. Like, that was a big year for werewolf movies. And it also kind of brought a little prestige because I think prior to 81, the idea of like, oh, it's a werewolf movie didn't didn't really sound that appealing. Now, not to me personally. Personally, I've always been a fan of the genre. And even if mm. I, you know, even even knowing that this is probably going to be a pretty silly movie, it's a werewolf movie. It doesn't bother me, you know. I'm 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 game for it. I like the genre, and even if I think it's going to be bad, it I'm, I'm like, bring it on, you know. It's a werewolf movie. <laughs> but when you look back at the the history of of werewolf movies, that there, there really is like the the high bar is American Werewolf in London, and I think after 81 it kind of went back downhill there wasn't a lot of really well-made werewolf movies um none really tried to go any new ground i mean certainly we had a couple of comedy type you know mix mixtures like with teen wolf and stuff like that i think like anything that what happens in the 80s and i mean we can see it what happened with freddie you use a an idea or you have something that's super popular and then in the 80s everything got campy and everything um it was a twinge of humor. So like, let's take something like the werewolf genre and add this teen comedy aspect, like teen wolf and make it about puberty. And it's even playing off of like the, you know, I was a teenage werewolf, which also played off puberty and like this idea of this transformation, you know, type of thing. But in the eighties, like so many things, this genre got stale and it didn't, it just stopped kind of working. And that's not to say like, I I agree with you. I love Silver Bullet. I mean, hell, I my pick of the week like many episodes ago was Wolf from the '90s, and I I, I love that werewolf movie. Yeah, and and I think too like the the movies are hindered in the same way that uh, like the vampire genre is because there's been so many movies made of that genre for the entire movie to stop so that they can explain rules of like, well, you need a wooden stake or you need silver bullet or you need to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there always has to be that scene because we know that werewolves exist in movies, but we've seen enough of them where the characters have to say, okay, we know what werewolves are from folklore, but now they're real, you know, and we got to deal with them and do these, do all these urban, you know, myths that we know of, like how to protect ourselves against vampires and werewolves. Do they work in this particular movie? And so that can be exhausting, too, because your 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 hand is forced as a filmmaker and a writer to kind of follow these rules that we universally have grown up to, like, know of the of these genres. And that's one thing to just kick off with Ginger Snaps that I feel is really great. And it's something just listening to interviews with the writer director. They started this off was they sat and made a list of like, OK, here are all the things that have been done in horror movies. Like, here's what we don't here's what we don't want to do for this movie and then they worked backwards and you know how come you know thought how can we do somewhat of a different spin or turn things on on its head and just having the characters be female was so is so refreshing with them being sisters and it being this sort of you know more of a emotional bond between 
the two sisters. And just on the basis of just a werewolf movie, this not only is that, but it is a coming of age story. And so it intertwines these ideas, you know, whether it is just about teens, like you said, siblings, all of these ideas kind of put together and then combining this horrific werewolf aspect that's not something that is cheesy and, you know, taking these ideas of what is a coming of age story, what are the things involved with that and intertwining them with something like this, which is a, you know, metamorphosis story, which happens in adolescence. It almost seems nutty that this hadn't happened like to this extent anyway, to in this, um, you know, in a non-comedic vein in something that was serious and also taking the idea of mythology out of it. Like there's not really a lot of, no one's consulting, no one's consulting a history book from the 1600s about ancient werewolves. You know, no one's doing that. This is about very much science and biology. What kind of happens with that? There is, you know, the idea of how can we cure this? Right. But I mean, I don't know. I'd be looking for a cure too if, if, if my friend turned into a werewolf or my sister did. But that's much more... It's tactile. It's something that is happening to you just like the idea of puberty, which is the huge allegory or metaphor that's happening in in the entire undercurrent of this movie, which intertwines so well with the idea of slowly changing over the course of a month, over the course of a lunar cycle and menstrual cycle, that this all intertwines to become the same thing that it's hard to differentiate between which is which. Just one of many things that, that makes this a good script and story is, again, dealing with the, something that's familiar, something that functions as a part of the characters and a part of the story, but then also giving these characters more life. We learn that these sisters are, you know, they feel a little bit opposite of, of their classmates. And then they both of them have are, are both late to menstruating. They're written as like they're pushing back on it. They're like, we're not letting it happen. We're not letting we don't want these changes to happen to our body. We're going to stop them. And when the change does come on, it's very much like the same exact time that Ginger is, is bitten by a werewolf and and going through the transformation of slowly becoming a werewolf the same time she's going through her uh, transformation through puberty, which I think is a very smart and clever way to make it a more visceral experience uh, for the characters and for the audience. Like, I'm not saying that I don't want to be in the library with, you know, Buffy and, and the Scoobies, you know, investigating werewolves. Like, I love that. I love that idea of a werewolf story, of a monster story. But when Ginger is in the, like, first stages kind of, like, of changing after, this is after her attack, but she has, uh, she's becoming kind of more sexual. She's she's gotten her period. She's been attacked by a wolf, but she's not really believing that her, like her sister Bridget's like, um, you kind of can't deny what's happening to you. And Ginger's saying, you're crazy. That stuff doesn't exist. And she has her first sexual experience with this boy. And Bridget finds her just vomiting blood in the toilet. And it's a horrible, like, ugh, that scene. There, there are many scenes in this movie like that. But she says something that is just everything in the movie for me. And she says, I thought that the ache I had was for sex, but it was to tear 
everything apart. Yeah. <laughs> and and like like I I get it. I get what she's saying because because they they kind of are. Like I get what you're saying as far as puberty and, and I get what you're saying if you're being a werewolf. It's the first time that these things are coming together in such a guttural way. Kind of like in the same discussion of like what makes this movie stand out amongst other werewolf movies is the the slow transformation of of a character into a werewolf because generally in a werewolf movie the legend is is that on a full moon that's when they're going to transfer and it all happens right when that full moon hits and then they go back to human form but this movie it's a slow transformation very much uh when she infects the other kid very much like kind of like a disease it's there's you like know, an STI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like onset. There's certain symptoms. Like there's changes that start happening very slowly. You know, she she notices like hair coming out from you know like almost <laughs> like a it looks like an incision in her shoulder, and then she notices you know she starts growing a tail. That's where it's it's different than puberty, right? There is the tail. <laughs> I like that they you know there's a there's a difference between a transformation before you know it doesn't just be, you know she doesn't become a werewolf within the first hour of a full moon. And then there's also yeah. the fact that once you become a werewolf in, in this universe and ginger snaps, there's no going back to your human form. You know, you fully transform into this beast and, and that's how you remain until you die. And just quickly, and they've also done away with the rules of like silver bullets and all this stuff in the beginning that attacks ginger is hit, hit by a van and, and it kills it. What a graphic scene that one is. That first initial attacking of ginger scene i mean let's let's not beat around the bush here i mean that that looks like i mean there's no sex but it is a metaphorical kind of rape scene it's awful um but it it is extremely effective in the the way that the effects were done in that movie of both actors kind of being on these like pulley systems However, who whose ever idea that was to do that, it makes it look so effortless and aggressive, as easygoing on the actors as it could have been. But man, is it it is effective. Several of the attack scenes in this movie are very vicious. Actually, a lot of them go on for quite a long time. You know, it's not <laughs> like do. this short little like uh, in a lot of werewolf movies, it's just like it jumps on them and you see like a quick flash and like, ah, and then it's, you know, cuts to like the next day or whatever. And the police discover the body. They have flashbacks. Did I just attack a deer in the middle of the woods? Yeah. yeah. These, uh, these, these seem to linger and they're, they, I almost feel like they're, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of poking the audience, you know, it's getting you stressed out, um, which I think is what horror movies do, you know, and this, this certainly isn't a tame horror movie. I feel like, you know, this is not horror light. So, you know, this is one where you really got to kind of, you know, be prepared to watch something that's visually intense, I guess. Yes. Visually intense. Definitely. And also, Justin and I always want to make sure to prep an audience. We are we are both lovers of pets. We love our animals. Um, just want to alert anyone who is like us. There are six dog deaths, and I apologize if I'm missing one of those. I, I don't know the number of people that are killed in this movie, but it, it is less than the amount of dogs, uh, dog bodies that we see in this movie. But don't you find it interesting that this particular movie... Because there's a there's a lot less gory movies with animal yeah. deaths in them that I can't handle, and there's six dog deaths in this movie, but I give it a pass. You know what the the difference is? We don't hear any squeaking, and we don't actually see it. We see the aftermath. Yeah. 
or in some cases we don't see it. We just understand that the neighbor dog is dead and there's his his owner screaming the aftermath, Mm -hmm. um, the discovery of the, the dead dog Corcus, which in one way was just one of the tropes in which the writer and director were trying to challenge of knowing that say, even though this is a Canadian film, they knew that for, um, for say, an American audience, I heard them talking about how maybe Canadians have a higher tolerance. And I was kind of curious about wanting to know a little bit more about that. But that knowing that an American audience is going to straight up have a problem. If there is an animal hurt in something, they're going to want to know what happened to that cat when it, <laughs> when it goes into the warehouse that later explodes. We need to know what happened to that cat. And animal death were just one trope that they were trying to challenge. And I kind of applaud them for that because, yeah, I don't feel upset <laughs> by the rather high body count on, on dogs. And another thing that I also noticed about this movie, and I don't, I, we'll get into the ending of, of Ginger Snaps later, but one thing I love about this, in, in a lot of horror movies, there's always, that, that features a prominent female lead. This movie has two female leads, and there is no final girl. The ending of this movie is so different when it comes to horror movies. Like, you don't feel at the end that someone triumphed. It's not that that vibe. And it's just one of the like many things that they were intentionally trying to do. Like there's not a male savior in this. You think that maybe there's going to be, but it is very obvious there is not. <laughs> um, there's just so many times that you think you know what's going to happen. And it's not like they're trying to like, oh, we're going to twist the plot on you. They just never even go there. They're just going to do the exact opposite. And it doesn't also feel while you're watching it that it's something that is is trying to manipulate you. It feels very natural how everything is lining out in the movie. Yeah, I do. I do agree. This is a very it's a very unpredictable movie in a somewhat predictable genre. And, you know, I like I like that about the characters that, you know, they they certainly do things that aren't always the smartest thing to do. You know, we're like, oh, what are you doing? But like you said, you know, we we don't have like a group of people that are that are close friends are slowly getting picked off. And then, you know, it comes down to one person. Mm -hmm. And the villain is also somebody that we care about. She can't help that she's transformed. And of course, we have an ending that is it's smart to me because it's a more realistic ending to what a horror movie is because you know you generally have these horror movies where you know it's it's the you have the final girl and yeah maybe she like kills the monster or kills the main villain or the killer and you're you're kind of cheering like oh yeah she did this but it's like well her friends are dead you know <laughs> this isn't but there that sense is never really floating around on screen and maybe for the maybe for the best you know maybe that's that's too drab for an ending but to me this ending feels more natural because she's killed her sister and she's upset about it you know she's upset about killing the monster and she's laying there with you know with the monster and it's with her sister and and we feel emotion and the music comes in and it's very you know it's it's not it was just a movie folks we're going to give you this happy music or this upbeat tempo music it's this very (laughs) sad music that you would hear in like depressing indie film or something it's it's (laughs) it's very rare when a, a horror movie can scare me excite me but then also make me feel a little emotional at the end the theme music the score of ginger snaps is most prominent to me on the opening credits which we haven't even gotten to yet 
and the very ending. We know over the opening credits that we're in for something offbeat and kind of strange and we don't really know the tone of it. But the the music is so somber and haunting. And then by the time we get to the ending, it's this full circle thing where we we know what that music was telling us in the beginning once we get to the very end. And we have the score that is interwoven all throughout the movie. And it's not that the tone changes, you know, starts out lighter and then gets increasingly darker or something like that throughout the movie. Certainly at the in the very end climax, there's nothing funny anymore. But throughout pretty much an hour and 30 minutes of this movie, there's sarcasm, there's dark humor, very, very morbid, disturbing moments that are all kind of woven in, you know, together. And I don't feel that I that my senses are challenged or that I'm not with it at certain points. But the music, along with the writing, like it, it, it is all very... Um, like I said before, it feels natural that, that that this humor that's happening would be happening with these two kind of Edward Gorey, you know, goth girls. Yeah, <laughs> that it, it, it makes sense for who they are. When in as somber is I feel the ending is and this movie is and the music is at times uh, there. There is a lot of humor in this movie. I mean, very dark humor, but it's there. And I don't know that it's something that I necessarily caught uh, right away, maybe in the first viewing. And in and, and very much the same way, I didn't catch a lot of the, the humor that was in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But watching mm. multiple viewings of of Ginger Snaps, I really see some of the humor really comes through, especially in, in the mom, uh, played by Mimi Rogers, her reactions and I think uh, at first watch, you can kind of think that the parents are just, uh, you know, her mom's just supposed to be kind of like crazy, kind of like a, she's kind of a loony mom, but the more. She's not the mom in, she's not the mom in sleepaway camp. She's not no, that crazy yeah, mom, but she's like kooky yeah, in the same and, way. And then more, and the more you, you know, and in the, in the, in the, her daughters are a little kooky themselves. So it's like, it, it makes <laughs> yeah. sense. But the more you watch the movie, I think a lot of humor comes out between their interactions and also the way that they are sort of interacting with their classmates and, and, and dealing with the world. You know, that there's there's some humor in the movie. And it's not like, like again, this sort of like laugh out loud slapstick humor. But the director or the writer said Heather's was an influence. That sort yeah. of dark humor where it kind of hits you later. You're like, oh, this this situation is 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 just so dark it's funny yeah the scene that cracks me up every time is after ginger gets her period and is attacked by a werewolf and and bridget is trying to buy her tampons in the store and she says you know what's wrong with you is it just cramps and ginger responds with just so you know the word just and cramps don't go in a sentence together you know, like that type of sarcasm humor when talking about something serious is certainly something that's interwoven through this entire story. But at the same time, you know, we have these metaphors that are worked in real life coming of age metaphors like self-mutilation that some some girls deal with. But in this case, it is Ginger trying to cut off her tail, wanting to be reluctant in what she's trying to become. And I mean, even this even gets worked in with the family dynamic. The mom, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about the cast. I won't get too far into this. But as far as like the mom being like this kind of kooky mom, like we were saying before, even she gets wrapped up in this idea of kind of being humorous, but at the same time having this sort of pack protective mentality that she's protecting her young 
And just the way that these tones are interwoven throughout this movie, I feel is, I mean, yeah, sure, we're handed, we're kind of handed the idea of lunar cycle and menstrual cycle being the same thing, but that wasn't something that they were going for initially. That was kind of something that they realized was really easy to introduce into the story, but it's not something that was originally there. And so I I feel like all of these things just kind of fell into place and came from a writer who knew, you know, what it was like to be an adolescent girl and, you know, had someone giving her ideas. But the director, John Fawcett, is not a writer. He knows that. But Karen Walton certainly knew how to write teenage girls and being someone that wasn't necessarily from the horror genre, but knew the horrors of adolescence, it seemed to just like really gel so well together. Yeah, I really think it was a good good call for John Fawcett to, like you said, realize you know his strengths are in directing and, and story into bringing bringing a writer in, especially within a topic that he was not solely familiar. Having a writer make these characters more rich and create that world of like these family dynamics that we see throughout the movie. A really good pairing between a writer and director, and it sounds like their relationship was like very strong throughout the this entire pre-production, production, and and post and release of this film. It seems like they they gelled very very well. Yeah, certainly, I really appreciate the uh, poking fun at suburbia and kind of looking at suburbia as kind of a horrific place to grow up in. That that was something that is obvious in even though it's not a main focus of the movie, it's obvious that. That is how Karen Walton feels. Totally. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. Let's go to another clip. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the cast, the effects, the release of the film, and a little bit about the uh, sequels. This did become a franchise. All righty. We'll be right back. We're almost not even related anymore. You're fucked. <laughs> Love it. She come for the ride. A little scratch. Swap some juice. We'll be our own path like before. So us be. I'd rather be dead than be what you are. We have a pact! Out by 16 or death this even together or fucking ever! I said it would die for you. No, you said you'd die with me, because you had nothing better to do. You think I want to go back to being nobody? You're fucked! Stay the hell out of my way, Bridget! And I'll tell Sam you said hi. So we wanted to talk about the cast a little bit, but before we get into that, uh, there was a tiny bit of controversy um, prior to the shooting of Ginger Snaps, a lot of movies that are made in Canada, their government is pretty awesome. They'll actually fund the arts uh, quite well. So if you're, you know, if you're doing a movie, you can get tax credits, you can get government funding to work on various uh, media arts projects, and that was the case with uh, Ginger Snaps. They were able to get some government funding to help with the budget of this movie. And it's not like the budget was huge. It was just right under $5 million for this entire film. But with that said, when you have the government funding a film, once the script gets out there and casting starts, if 
someone finds something objectionable and goes to the media about it, you could have a problem on your hands, which was the case with Ginger Snaps. So even though the idea for this movie had been around since 95, I think that's when originally Karen Walton and John Fawcett had begun workshopping this. So it, it had been in the works for quite a few years. And then it comes time for casting and it happens to fall right around the same time as Columbine. And we all know what that was. Like one of huge, I mean, I remember when this happened when I was in high school's huge high school shooting and So this becomes worldwide news, and a week later, there's also another shooting that happens, a school shooting. And so at the same time, Ginger Snaps, the script is out there. People are just seeing teen-on-teen violence, and it's not looking very good. Like, the optics are not looking very good. So basically, the entire Toronto casting community boycotted being involved with casting anyone from Toronto. So they had to go to... LA and Vancouver and other places um, to try and get this movie in the works. And luckily, you know, it it, it took a little while, but media involvement um, certainly had a negative impact and made it kind of a yet another obstacle, like as if funding wasn't enough of an obstacle in the first place, then they had this. But eventually, they did find their cast. And a lot of these people did come from Vancouver, including um, our two main stars, Catherine Isabel and Emily Perkins. Yeah, it's got to be tough where you've spent, you know, a good three or four years of your life building toward finally shooting this movie. And then you're dealt with like a, a morality situation where, you know, you're you're viewed as a monster if you're going to make this movie because people are offended by the violence. And you can't help but feel as someone that is creatively involved in the movie that who has a problem with this movie hasn't read the script. Like, this doesn't have to do with school shootings. It doesn't have to do with teen violence. It is... (laughs) Watch the movie. It has nothing to do with anything other than the people involved happen to be in high school. But that said... As we see um, in in culture, even nowadays, um, I mean, there are hot button issues everywhere. And but nowadays, this is not where this started. So Ginger Snaps um, did have an issue uh, in the beginning, but eventually did get the ball rolling and ended up with a pretty awesome cast. I personally really have always had a, a kinship with Emily Perkins, since seeing her in It, she was like the little girl in pigtails in It, and I was like the same age and really identified with her. So when I knew that she was in Ginger Snaps, I'm like, oh, hell yes, I'm watching this movie. And Catherine Isabel, I had seen her um, also in just a few other like TV things before. These two actors, when you have a relationship like this, two sisters that are, aren't just sisters, they're each other's world. There is a certain codependency in their relationship in this movie, and that is what the entire movie's built upon, and you have to believe it. That being said, you've got to be really selective with who you cast. And luckily, and this wasn't intentional, it just kind of happened, there were a few choices for Ginger, and there were a few choices for Bridget. But when it came down to them auditioning together and running scenes together, these were the only two that worked. And ironically, or maybe not so ironically, both being from Vancouver, they'd known each other in the acting world since they were kids, and actually had the same agent. And just kind of makes sense that they had a certain simpatico, I guess you could say. 
So when they were running scenes together, and even on the DVD Blu-ray special release, they're... I don't know if you had a chance to watch those, Justin, but their auditions, like their rehearsals together are so good. Yeah. It's like I'm just basically watching the movie. They're so good together. When it's got it's it's always got to be tough casting siblings, but not only casting siblings, but casting these two siblings that are not only just close in age, but in the movie, they're written as being almost attached at the hip. You know, they're yeah. they're very close uh, to one another. They've had this long history that these two actors clearly have to pull off. And, and as we've talked many times before in other episodes, it is always hard to cast uh, child actors, you know, and, them, and they usually, you know, have to cast older. And that's what they did. Uh, and, you know, they're supposed to be 15 and 16 in the movie. They're 18 and 22 in real life. But they chose really well, I think, both of these actors look the age that they're supposed to be. And that's always something that I'm, when it comes to teen movies, there's nothing that pulls me out of a teen movie quicker than it looks like a couple of 30 year olds playing the teenagers in the movie. Oh Um, yeah. You just said you just can never buy it, but I, I buy the innocence and the, the naiveness of like young kids in this movie and both leads, they really play off of each other. And this really is a, you know, even though the movie's called Ginger Snaps, uh, clearly a lot is put on the shoulders of Emily Perkins' Bridget because the movie is really from her point of view. The events of, uh, you know, the transformation, the unfolding, all the stuff is happening to the Ginger character. Um, Bridget's the one that has to deal with all this. And she really, I think, has like a nice character arc because, you know, she starts out by kind of following her sister's every move and her, her sister's older than her and she looks up to her and by the end of the movie you know she's becomes the the stronger sibling and is telling her sister you know you need to snap out of this you need to listen to me and and she kind of has like a full character arc in this movie which is something that's uh, again like going back to things that this movie does that other horror movies don't usually don't get a full character arc of a care of a main character in a horror film man that is the truth yes and don't you kind of love that the title of this movie makes you think that it's going to be about Ginger, but really it is yeah. totally Bridget's story. I love that aspect. Like the idea that Bridget is kind of under Ginger's thumb as her younger sister, even though they're in the same grade. And it was, I think it's said somewhere in the movie that Ginger was the reason that Bridget was able to skip a grade. That's not really elaborated on. It doesn't matter, but they're in the same grade. She's still a year younger, but she's very controlling of Bridget, not in a, you know, manipulative way necessarily. Ginger has to be Bridget's number one. That is the person that she has to put first and foremost um, above everything. And in the midst of this whole idea of adolescence as performance, the character arc of Bridget starting out in the beginning, I, I don't think you really get the sense of this unless you watch it a second or third time, But Bridget in the beginning is very guarded. She doesn't make eye contact with anyone. And I don't know if that was just Emily Perkins acting, you know, this character, like her idea. But how how it comes across is very much this like wall and guarded and shy, not awkward, but just like 
not wanting to let people in. By the end of the movie, it's she's not like that anymore. She's definitely found herself, and it's because of how Ginger has, like, how, you know, the transformation that she's going through throughout the entire film and how Bridget has to be the one that deals with it. Just the way that these two stories overlap and how it's not just about one girl's story, that it is about how both of these stories come together and how they how these two people who are so close and connected at the hip, like you said, how they're so close, but yet they have to be split apart like Siamese twins almost. Such a great casting of, of these two sisters. Like I know uh, John Fawcett, the director, said uh, Heavenly Creatures was like a big influence on this. And I can certainly see that sort of like the acting and the, the way that these two characters are displayed. I really, you know, Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, I haven't seen it, are very... Um, similar tone that this movie has. And... Mm-hmm. I think I let out a good laugh when I heard the director say Heavenly Creatures. Yeah. It was like, oh, it's like, yeah, yeah totally hits. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Another really great casting choice was the mother played by Mimi Rogers, who had been in dozens and dozens of movies prior to this, um, probably one of the more seasoned actors in, in Ginger Snaps. Her addition to this movie adds this idea of anchoring, like this validity, like sort of thing. Because by the time I'd seen Ginger Snaps, not to always, I always got to bring it back to X Files, don't I? Um, I knew Mimi Rogers from some previous work with David Duchovny in a movie called The Rapture, and she was also in um, X Files and from many movies before this. So to me, Mimi Rogers was like the actor I knew out of all of these people that was the adult, you know, not just like the, the child actor who I could identify with on a, on a personal level. And what she brings to this role is so interesting uh, for the, for the mother character, because she starts off as kind of someone that you think is clueless, who really isn't in touch with her kids. And in some ways she's not, Um, but she's trying as best as she can. But I'd say even halfway through the movie, not even three quarters, you start to get clued in to the idea that she's not as absent-minded as you think. And that's where this whole idea of pack mentality, this, you know, metaphor for being like the mother that's going to protect her young uh, to no end starts to starts to kick in. Yeah, and I, and I think, too, she... Uh, really surprises me in this movie because she, like you said, does in the beginning have this sort of, she plays the character as like this sort of kind of a goofy, yeah, like you said, clueless parent. But then later on when she does fall into that protective, you know, protecting her cubs, they have, you know, it's right toward the end of the movie where she has found the fingers of the girl that Ginger's killed and she didn't kill her. Let's do. It All was right. an didn't accident. Didn't kill her. It was an accident. But um, <laughs> they were they they buried the body. They covered up. They covered up what happened. So they're guilty. But when uh, when Mimi Rogers finds Bridget and and picks her up, they have what I think is other than the ending of this film, the second most emotional scene of the movie. And that scene is man, it really plays like very real and has like such a has such a punch, you know, because. Um, so much craziness has happened and then she kind of like really I feel like lays out a really realistic I'll go to the extreme to protect you girls you know like I'll fill the house with gas and I'll burn it down and (laughs) it even surprises Bridget and it's such an extreme thing and and Bridget 
her look of surprise is great because it's, you know, she's trying to deal with all this other stuff, trying to help her sister, everything that we've, we as an audience have seen. And this particular scene catches you so off guard and you feel so much for Mimi Rogers' character. And you're almost just like, wow, I wish you would have had these conversations with your daughter before because she feels like such a real parent at that moment when faced with like, Mm -hmm. you know, the potential of like her family being endangered. And that's where I, I think some of the smarts again in the script comes through because you know, the the movie does uh, a good job of kind of showing that, uh, again, that dark com- comedic humor of like the cracks within the suburban lifestyle that we've seen in other movies and we've seen in John Waters movies. But then to counteract with the scene that's so real and so emotional, I think is really brilliant. You know, and it really that that scene, I think like the last time I was watching, I was like, man, this is a really I mean, it's like a scene from a different movie. You know, it's not something that you would traditionally see again in in a horror movie, but it really works. And it doesn't I don't think it uh, feels out of place at all. It just it makes you feel even more for the characters and it makes you um, root more for Bridget, you know, trying to get out of the situation. And a lot of that, I think, is due to Mimi Rogers. I, I, I know. Uh, John Fawcett said, you know, he gave her some liberties and kind of taking that character a little bit further than I think was written on the page. And in that scene, you kind of forget the fact like she's she's willing to help out her daughters. I mean, like you said, she's like, I'm going to set the house on fire and we're going to take off and start a new life. You know, screw your dad. But she doesn't even know that Ginger is a werewolf. She's just she just knows that that her daughter's are involved with his girl's death in some way. She doesn't know the extent, but that's what she's willing to do. And yeah, I love this scene and and what she brought to this role, whether it's something serious like this scene or God, this scene that where she's having a very real moment with her daughter. She's also got these like dangling (laughs) jack-o'-lanterns earrings, you know, and her scrunchies and her hair, like the suburban mom it is so well portrayed, and I think a lot of the costuming was all Mimi Rogers. Like she was given options, and she she picked out all the outfits that she's wearing. And John Fawcett likes to point out the scene in which Mimi Rogers is is doing some laundry, and I guess how it was scripted it was that she pulls out some underwear, and it's just a. <laughs> It is sorry as as someone who very much remembers their period. It's comical looking back on it, but pulls out these underwear that are just like soaked in blood, and sees it. And as a mom, you know, I think it was written into the script as like you know she just washes it right. What Mimi Rogers's addition was to this story was kind of what we're describing in the car as she sees it, and she thinks. I'm just going to grab some resolve and try to get that stain out real quick and just, you know, scrub it, just scrub it out, you know, and then put it in the wash. But that's not how it was scripted. And it's just so sweet and innocent and trying to cover and help her daughters, like in a way that's just like a little bit extra. And she does a comedic beat there. You know, it's it it makes the scene. Yeah, it's not meant to be serious. It's (laughs) the way that she does it is is, yeah, very funny. And I know that we're we're going kind of long right now. So just to kind of wrap up, I mean, those those three really are the heart and soul. I feel of of Ginger Snaps. Justin, do you kind of you kind of agree with yeah, me on agree. this? Yeah, I think like yeah. the the main yeah they're the heart of the movie. You know, we're, we're following their story, their journey. 
I do really appreciate Chris Lemke, who plays Sam, who is the drug dealer, who ends up, you think, is going to be the guy that saves the day, who swoops in and, and who does help Bridget figure out the cure for, you know, for lycanthropy, um, but who doesn't make it in the end and is a very horrific, painful, awful death. But when it happens, I'm kind of like, man, I'm really glad that that happened, just that there wasn't going to be a guy that was going to save the day. But Chris Lemke's performance is awesome in this movie, and um, Jesse Moss, <laughs> who plays the poor, unfortunate Jason, who Ginger does infect with this werewolf STI virus, and is how a, a boy reacts, turning into a, a werewolf, he becomes zit covered and like yeah. really just like amped up and like just like can't even control himself like a totally prepubescent 12 year old i love how his character is portrayed in this movie he does such a great job um probably trina sinclair that big old b in this movie played by daniel hampton she's only in it for about half the movie but it's that half of the movie that you're not exactly sad when she slips on some spilled milk and hits her head. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny role. Um, is uh, Lindsay Lease plays the the nurse who's talking to her, you know, and they're, they're <laughs> saying like, no, it was like a lot of blood, you know. When or she where they're her, talking about their period. They're She's talking about their periods, yeah. Describing what a period's like. It, and, it's cool. And, you know, she kind of has this look on her face like, uh, you know, she's like, <laughs> her smile is so big and she's like, I'm sure it seemed traumatic kind of thing, you know, but let me explain to you. It's totally normal. It's kind of cartoony, but it, it that that particular scene with the nurse, uh, her performance always kind of gives me the biggest laugh in the movie. You ever notice how she's got a Kleenex stuffed up one of her sleeves too, like a, <laughs> like a grandma thing? Yeah, I yeah. love it so much. It's so funny. Let's see, Mr. Wayne, uh, Peter Klingon. I'm not exactly sad when he dies either, but his scene where he is, you don't actually see him get it, uh, but you do see the aftermath. And man, those effects are pretty cool, I gotta say. We should really hit on the effects in this movie. Not that they're like, this isn't a, a giant digital effects type movie, but there are a lot of practical effects involved in this. And that scene uh, in particular, the way just little... Little details are paid attention to, like half of his ear is kind of gone and in a way that unless you're looking directly at his ear, you're not going to see it. But if you're looking at it, you're like, holy crap, that looks so real. The next hour, we'll just be talking about uh, the difference between practical and visual effects <laughs> and which is better. I'm joking. Um, we kind of uh, go into that like um, every, I'd say, third episode. Is that right? Probably. But this is a very heavily practical effects movie. And the big thing to look at with this movie is like, okay, it's a werewolf movie. Does this werewolf look legit or not? And mm -hmm. I really think the werewolf looks great. I mean, the werewolf certainly looks like a variation of other werewolves we've kind of seen. But it does have its own personalities and its own originality to it uh, to me a lot of the effects i think are the most creative or, or the deaths and the the mutations of the dead dogs the, the graphicness of those is uh i think what lends to believing that the, the story that this universe is existing i can't remember the last time i saw a werewolf in real life but the depiction in ginger snaps this 
elongated neck with the, the this, this dog cats kind of hellhound hybrid that's very feminized in some ways and I like that aspect it creates such an original feel so with this werewolf that we see a little bit of we see we see enough of it I think I, I think we see just enough of it but the death scenes like with the dogs like with the with the counselor we really linger on these moments and i think that these are the moments um that like you said stand out and we i can't believe we haven't even talked about it but the opening credits to this movie with the death slides the just these f- photos of how the girls are you know obsessed with either suicide or accidental death and photographing these staged moments those scenes just these still images really show the creativity behind the i can't imagine being in the effects department being like are you serious i get to like put a lawnmower on someone's stomach and like just have a still image of that that's so cool but yes all of the death image scenes we get a lot more packed into this movie than the actual like murders that happen in it yeah this is undoubtedly if you're you know if you like the gore ginger snaps (laughs) is for you and the opening title sequence is just sort of like gives you a taste of like it I, i almost think it's like it's a bold title sequence because it's so kind of graphic and crazy and you're like, we're just, this is just the opening of the movie, but it really does kind of like give you a sense of like what you're in for and, and definitely delivers. It sure does. And as far as the reaction to this movie, whether it is, you know, from people that love gore or love the metaphors or just the overall story, the performances, this movie like went over fairly well. Um, it debuted in 2000 at the Munich fantasy fest And then later um, at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2000, afterwards, there was quite a buzz that was created around it. It wasn't anything like the, you know, controversy that happened around casting. People were kind of excited about it. But when it went to be released, it just kind of flopped. It got trounced by The Mummy Returns and then just kind of faded into oblivion. There was a brief moment when Fox Searchlight was going to pick it up and were in talks with John Fawcett, but Fox Searchlight said, yeah, we'll totally take this movie from you, but we're going to need to take out all the fucks, which if you've seen this movie or if you are going to see this movie, fuck is littered throughout the entire film. And they wanted to take down the the violence in it. And this movie's littered with violence as well. And they wanted to make it a PG-13 movie. So John Vossett just said, yeah, I don't even know what you want then. You don't want this movie. If you want me to take out those two things, that would just be like a giant editing mess for me to do. So in essence, after that, it just kind of went away, uh, which is devastating, I can imagine, for anyone that was involved with it, certainly for John Fawcett. And it wasn't until uh, quite a little while later that a guy from New York, from a rep theater in New York, contacted him and said, yo, I want to show this movie right before Halloween. Is there any way I can get a print of it? And Fawcett said, I don't really have a distributor for the U.S., but if you want a print of it, I can get you one. So then this guy in New York gets it. It's seen. And then a short little while later, uh, there's this awesome review of Ginger Snaps by the New York Times and kind of just blows up immediately, or at least people start talking about it. And John Fawcett said a week later 
they had a deal with HBO. HBO bought it and just started airing it. And it had a direct video release in the U.S. and has steadily just kind of over the years become this cult hit. And it's that cult status that got it, I think, like started building this sort of small legacy. um, And that's what got the green light for there to be back to back sequels made. Yeah, I think talks began in 2002 for there to be uh, sequels to it. So John Fawcett was offered $12 million to make two sequels. And, you know, here's a sum of money. Make two sequels happen. And it wasn't necessarily that he was stoked about making them. And I think if you watch Ginger Snaps, it's not a movie that lends itself to having a sequel. Like you could, there's a there is some open endedness at the at the end of the film, but that's not what you're thinking about. Is where's this story going to go after this incredibly depressing, sad, uh, emotional ending? But both the uh, second and third uh, movies were shot in 2003, and both had a 2004 release. There was Ginger Snaps Two Unleashed. And Ginger Snaps 3, The Beginning, which was a prequel. Think what you will about sequels. I really like Ginger Snaps 2. It is certainly a different turn than, than you know, the movie we've been talking about, the original. It focuses on Emily Perkins' character, who is trying to fight the urge of, of becoming a werewolf and is kind of hiding out in a rehab facility. It is much darker. I think if you like Ginger Snaps, you're going to like the sequel or at least appreciate where it's going. And with the third sequel, which is the prequel Ginger Snaps Back, the beginning, again, if you like Ginger and Bridget, you like these characters, the both actors are back for them, just like in the second one, Catherine Isabel is in the second one as well. You're probably going to like the third one. It is a period piece, takes place in the 19th century. It is much more of a werewolf movie. The The second one is a werewolf movie, but it's more about Bridget's struggle with it. It's more about her struggle more so than Ginger's. The third one's more of a revisit back to Bridget and Ginger, the sister loyalty connection They're worth seeing if you love Ginger Snaps. It's not as good as the original, but I think that's how it is with a lot of movies. But I'm certainly glad that two and three were made. The performances, both by Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel, are, I mean, they are Ginger and Bridget. They're they're amazing in, in the roles, no matter what situation they're put in. Yeah, and I think if you you know if you if you're not exhausted by horror sequels, which I know is very it's it's something that that can easily be done because there's just anytime a horror movie is even remotely successful, they'll make like five of them no problem. Um, generally with like much lower budgets, but this one actually the the sequels had a bigger budget than the original. The original actors come back to sequels. It makes there's a legitimacy to them. You know you you can imagine that the scripts couldn't be so crappy that they were like, you know, we're going to come back for not (laughs) one, but two sequels. And then when the original creators involved, uh, it lends a little more legitimacy that these are not just a a cash grab. You know, there's a little bit of love and a little bit more creativity and originality put into them. And um, yeah, I think they're both worth a watch. I've got to respect any franchise that tries to be different from the original. This was not something that was trying to recreate the original, and I got to admire that. 
Well, well, let's stop there. Um, we'll come back for some final thoughts on ginger snaps, but we should probably move on to our picks of the week. So we kept it, uh, you know, we're staying again, staying on our horror train for the month of October, including our picks of the week. Um, I decided to stick with the werewolf genre with Wolfen, but Lindsay, you uh, went with the Emily Perkins connection with the TV-made version of Stephen King's It. What can you tell me about that creepy, creepy television movie? Well, 30 years ago, Stephen King's It was condensed from an 1,100-page novel into a 250-page screenplay adaptation for a two-part television miniseries. This was an incredible feat just to even attempt. Now, as someone who loves the book, it's a book I've actually read, what's always kept me coming back to director Tommy Lee Wallace's version of the story is the simplicity of the scares, depth of storytelling with the time allowed, and the vibe behind this visual presentation. Lawrence Cohen, who adapted King's novel Carrie for the screen, and Wallace are responsible for making this steadily paced three-plus-hour movie possible. I think the most memorable parts of the book are in the film, and it feels like they really try to stay true to the story. There are no jump scares in this one. It's just a constant sense of foreboding in both parts of the miniseries. The first taking place in the 1960s and the second in what was contemporary 1990. This is an incredibly dark story about facing forgotten childhood traumas and intertwining multiple coming-of-age stories. Seven kids, all of whom have experienced various forms of torment and feeling like an outsider. Through happenstance, these kids end up being friends, bonded forever through their collective feelings of otherness, and experiencing anomalous encounters with their worst fears manifested before them. Fears that no adults can see, only each other. Almost as if they're being targeted by some entity. And this entity we come to know as It, or Pennywise the Clown, who is this unifying vision of this for real child-killing creature, but ends up not uh, being the actual form of the beast. Using flashbacks to intertwine the time period specific stories really helps emphasize the impact of each character's lives. They come together as children to stop it, which is a heroic notion for any preteen. The intermingling of these two time periods feels neither isolated or like this is the beginning and then this is the bookend of, of the story, at least for me. As with King's stories, um, it's set in the fictional town of, of Derry in Maine. This is a cross-section of Americana, like where racism, sexism, fat-shaming, bullying, all of these things go unnamed and without consequence. And as adults, six of the seven kids of the self-proclaimed Losers Club leave Derry and are unusually successful in their professions, even if something seems amiss in their personal lives. It was filmed in British Columbia, and so this damp darkness uh, backdrop uh, is a very much a character as much as the actual actors involved. It establishes this eeriness and foreboding and immediate uneasiness, which lasts throughout the entire picture. Having to be adapted for television meant that some of the more horrific elements of the novel couldn't be depicted. So although it is very much a horror film, the psychological aspect of the story is at the forefront. The violence that's contained in the original story, if you've read this book, it would just be unimaginable for 1990. 
TV regulations discourage showing violence enacted upon children. So you could, you know, grab, chase, generally terrorize kids, sure, but no actual harm. Instead, it had to be through blood speedily oozing from a photo of one of Pennywise's victims or blood balloons exploding in faces, Pennywise emerging from a shower drain, or my favorite, that unforgettable bloody sink explosion that ends in a feeling of complete and utter loneliness afterwards. By 1990, horror movies weren't a hot commodity. Like, remember this. The idea of Stephen King adaptations of of novels, it was just kind of played out. But it played upon the same feelings of friendship as one of his more beloved stories, Stand By Me. And it couldn't hurt to play on the psychological impact of terror and unifying friendship feeling in order to hook a non-horror audience. Except this was a much, much darker story. Some people just think of it as the scary clown movie, but the shared experience of these kids is about confronting traumas of our past, about kids who were abused, too scared to confront their abuser at the time, found strength in each other, but buried their traumas so deeply that when this metaphorical monster returns, they're the only ones left alive who can stop this abuse or literal murderers happening in real time as we see in the movie. I mean, how do you even defeat a monster or an abuser who says, I'm your worst dream come true. I'm everything you ever were afraid of. I mean, this is terrifying. The cast is what's always kept me coming back to this one. And upon closer look, the casting of this movie was really intentional for the time period, and I've never thought about it until now. The adult actors in It weren't known for doing anything even close to horror. So again, how do you grab a non-horror audience when you're concerned about viewership? You cast very familiar, kind faces all playing against type. And while I appreciate these adult roles, I saw this movie as an eight-year-old, so these kids were the ones who hooked me. And I don't know if it's the varying sizes or heights or just costuming of these kids, but man, they look cherry-picked right out of the 1960s. And this is a whopping 15 main actor cast who are the entire reason you care about this movie. In one frame, you could have four to seven of them at once. This movie kind of deserved to be widescreen. As I said before, my beloved Emily Perkins of Ginger Snaps is my spirit connection to it. Um, She and Annette O'Toole play Beverly, the courageous tomboy and only girl of the group. John Boy Walton, Richard Thomas, and sweet baby angel Jonathan Brandis, R.I.P., play the loser's leader, Bill. That lovable John Ritter, also R.I.P., and Brandon Crane, whose flame stayed alive for decades, play Ben. Adam Faraisal and Dennis Christopher play the meek yet quietly brave Eddie. Tim Reed and Marlon Taylor are the heart of the group as Mike, who completes the Lucky Seven. The Things, Richard Masser and Ben Heller, play the two traumatized to ever recover Stanley. And actor, director, writer Seth Green and Night Court's Harry Anderson, also R.I.P., play Richie, who taught us to say beep beep when the comic relief needed to settle down. And who am I missing? Oh yeah, of course, Black Christmas's own uh, Canadian <laughs> beloved uh, Olivia Hussey, who should have never followed her husband to Derry, and of course, Mr. Tim Curry, who plays Pennywise. Curry's portrayal is responsible for so many being afraid of clowns, that body Bronx accent with a smile that's not quite right, throwing some, you know, unbelievably funny lines immediately followed by sheer terror in. He is a thing of which nightmares are made. 
And quick factoid, the Pennywise makeup was all Curry's idea. The actor was kind of over the idea of intense makeup sessions, especially after playing the devil in Ridley Scott's Legend. So he suggested a less exaggerated, barely any prosthetics version of Pennywise, which everyone ended up agreeing was much more effective. I totally agree, too. As for the effects in it, uh, Pennywise's makeup is timeless, even though stomach-churning teeth really hold up. And the times we see reanimated dead people and skeletons, those effects still work too. Um, the scary moments really involve simple in-camera effects or split-screen times that play upon the creep factor. Sure, I mean, there's a few moments that don't work. There's like a dog head and a clown suit or astral projections of Pennywise. But you know what, dude? These are budgetary constraints. They did the best that they could. Wallace's John Carpenter-inspired POV shots and selective handheld moments really add and help the uneasiness of this whole movie. Now, I know I need to close out, Justin. I know. I'm getting there. Um, But for those of you who've seen this, please know that the director, Stephen King, and the entire cast, we were all unsatisfied with the ending, okay? We all were. I'm not going to ruin this for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the ending of the novel is so cerebral and almost impossible to put on the screen with the film's budget and time allotted. It just, it just didn't work. However, uh, I think how the cast handles it, how impassioned the ending is, the sweat, the animalistic nature that comes through and the remaining losers, dude, I feel it. I don't care if those effects look like Clash of the Titans or not. It works for me. And there are just some things that can't be visually communicated with this story. King thought that this miniseries was an admirable attempt at trying to condense a mammoth book into four hours with commercials. Now, there is apparently an upcoming documentary that will hopefully come out later this year, so watch for that or follow them for updates on Instagram. And if you need a soundtrack for your haunted house, really seek out Richard Bellis's score for this film because it's so unnerving. Maybe you're not a horror fan, but if a mainstream ABC audience could handle this movie 30 years ago... So can you. The somber tone and never-ending creepiness will stick with you, but this original miniseries version is still my favorite and really still rules in its effectiveness. I, I think back of like horror movies that affected me in my childhood, and I was probably 11 or 12 when this aired on television, and I remember, I, you know, I had already been a horror fan. Like I've seen, I had seen all the Freddies, all the Jasons, but I remember I was thinking, oh, yeah, this it's it looks kind of creepy. And it came on and my grandparents, I was at their house at the time and they were just like, oh, we're going to bed. This isn't, isn't for us. And oh, my God, you watched it by yourself. Yeah. And I remember like no. it's, a, it's a TV movie. And I remember <laughs> just being like terrified, like, oh, my God, why is this so scary? But yeah, I you know, and it's still again, I've watched it, I guess, within the last like year or so. And. I still think it holds up, you know, and I, I didn't mind the, the remakes too much. I like part two better than the first, but though long and I don't, I can't always watch it in one sitting. I, I do like revisiting uh, the original it from time to time. If there was any movie that deserved a theatrical release, it was it. So I'm totally fine that the, that the remake exists, but I, if, if you were to ask me to watch, part one and two of the new ones or the original miniseries, man, if I want to feel really uneasy and creeped out and <laughs> watch a scary movie, I'm totally going to watch that original mini miniseries. Such a good one. 
All right, I want to hear about Wolfen. So I chose Wolfen because I wanted something to kind of balance out Ginger Snaps where they're similar in some senses because there's a lot of intelligence in the script of Wolfen and I think there's a lot of intelligence in the script of Ginger Snaps. But where Ginger Snaps was a very graphic and has a lot of gore and shows a lot of the creature, Wolfen shies away from a lot of that. Uh, I actually think Wolfen, you know, when we talk about horror light and if you're not a big fan of horror movies or you're, you know, it's not your thing, uh, but you, but you want to like see something during October that's, that's semi-scary, but isn't going to gross you out. I think Wolfen is a good pick. It came out in 1981 during, you know, what we consider to be the, the werewolf boom with same years howling in American werewolf in London. But this movie was some people I think would not characterize this as a werewolf movie, but I totally think it is in the sense of lore and, and legend. Strangely it was directed by uh, Michael Wadley, who um, had really mainly been a cinematographer of like documentaries um, and also had shot and directed Woodstock. So this is his only feature film is a director and is a co-writer and a very, very classy cast. We've got uh, Albert Finney, Diane Venora, Edward James Almost, Gregory Hines, Tom Noonan, award-winning actors uh, getting together for this very classed up beastly horror film about a uh, very gruff detective played by Albert Finney. He's very, very gruff. <laughs> I would say like a more understated performance for Albert Finney. You know, he usually plays it pretty big. He's investigating much kind of like Exorcist 3 and the first power that I talked about last episode. He's investigating these grisly crimes that are taking place in and around the South Bronx in New York. They're not really sure what's going on with these killings. You know, the the victims have been dismembered, but there's some non-human hairs, some non-human residue that's left over on the victims uh, that they, you know, are, are... getting uh, sort of like this wacky zoologist played by Tom Noonan to kind of figure out. Um, Albert Finney eventually gets paired up with police psychologists um, played by Diane Venora and a coroner played by Gregory Hines in a, a really great performance trying to solve the case. This movie is not big on showing the creature. This was kind of the first time this effect had been done, this like thermography where they're showing the point of view of the the beasts in this sort of like strange, discolored heat wave look. I guess uh, eventually it was done a little bit better and used in the movie Predator, the point of view of the, the Predator killer. But... Um, not done as well in this movie, but it's effective. I think they kind of overuse it a little bit, but you know, it was the first time it had been used, so they're probably pretty excited about having this effect in a movie. It is a slow burn. I mean, this movie came out in 81, but it definitely feels like a movie that was made in the 70s. It takes its time slowly developing the case while Albert Finney's going around collecting information. Uh, eventually, he comes in contact with a former criminal that he had been involved with, that he had arrested before, played by Edward James Almost, who's a Native American who's working on a construction site that's near where a lot of these killings are happening. And the story sort of morphs into a, a movie about gentrification and how people are getting pushed out of their lands, like the Indians were, and people are getting pushed out of this neighborhood, and they're tearing down a neighborhood to replace it with something for for people who are wealthier and who didn't spend any time in that area, didn't grow up in that area. And I think that's why maybe the director was uh, attracted to this story because it wasn't a straight-up horror film. There's a lot going on uh, underneath, you know, these 
these killings that are happening about every 20 minutes in the movie. And the werewolf aspect of it is definitely more of a more Native American spiritual side. Like it's a little bit explained by the Edward James almost character. I don't understand. I don't feel like it's like 100% clear, but watch the movie and find out for yourself. Uh, Again, it's definitely one that uh, this movie isn't particularly scary. And I will say the third act is a little bit lackluster, you know, like especially because you're on such like a long ride for, for the slow burn. But it is worth your time. It is a really well-crafted and well-acted movie, especially for the horror genre. And uh, I think, it again, it's like it plays into what we've talked about many times before, the horror light. If you're looking for something to watch in October, but you, you don't want to go for the hardcore horror, um, this is, though it's rated R, I think this could probably pass as a, a PG movie right now. Oh, man. Yeah, that could be said for a lot of things. I feel like a lot of early 80s movies fell into this like feeling where they were one thing and then they had all of this like intense involved story behind them and it was it's incredibly engaging but it's a whole different speed than what we're used to nowadays and i think wolfen like falls into that this is a very entertaining movie man i saw this like early on and i just revisited it recently and it was a kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember this part. I remember this part. Oh, man, that is buried deep in my brain. But Gregory Hines is somebody who stood out to me in this. I watched a lot of him in, in comedies mainly in, in the 80s. But seeing this, I think I saw this like after I had seen Running Scared and uh, movie Deal of the Century, like movies like that. And so seeing this after the fact was kind of like, oh, man, this is a whole different whole different game this guy can do a lot yeah he i think he definitely adds some of the comedic bits in in wolfen Um, yeah he's the more eccentric character in this movie um and i've honestly i've always thought that was a cool movie title wolfen is a really cool movie title Mm -hmm. um it really uh speaks volumes just just that and the poster was very ominous but um worth checking out those are our picks of the weeks wolfen and it the original tv miniseries well let's keep on moving Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun. So Billy's no stranger to the country from which Ginger Snaps was born, Canada. And just as Ginger Snaps was all the buzz at the 2000 Toronto International Film Festival TIFF, that same festival decided to celebrate Billy Murray in 2014 by declaring September 5th, the second day of the festival that year, as official Bill Murray Day. This was also the premiere of his film St. Vincent, and in conjunction with that, TIFF also held three free screenings of Murray Films' Ghostbusters, Stripes, and Groundhog Day. And all of these films are directly tied to Jack of All Trades and Billy's longtime friend Harold Ramis, who had actually just passed away earlier that same year. Personally, I can't help but 
feel that this was intentional and not a coincidence, but who knows? All right. Anyway, during this Bill Murray day, hundreds of fans showed up in outfits relating to Murray films like Life Aquatic Steve's Zoo, Ghostbusters Vankman, even Stripes John Winger. And there was also a baby dressed as the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And if you can believe it, Bill was receptive to this spectacle in his honor and actually showed up to the event, of course, with some, you know, dry sarcasm following him. I sort of stayed in my room for a long time, Bill said of his time right before the start of this marathon event. People kept coming up and saying things like, well, it's real humid out there. I think it's going to even get more humid. So that's kind of what my day's been like. It's just been a weather report, really. But he did say that the uh, event, you know, afforded him a luxury parking spot wherever he wanted. But that luxury parking spot didn't shield him from the downpour of rain that descended upon the event right before he arrived. He showed up to the Princess of Wales Theater drenched but ready for action, even if he was trying to playfully divert attention away from Tiff focusing on him. It's just kind of an odd thing. I think if I weren't in a movie this year, they, you know, wouldn't have called it Bill Murray Day. They would have come up with Jason Reitman or some local hero. I don't know. But it's nice, though. And from what I can tell, he played along pretty well with the whole thing. Someone gave me this, he said, of his uh, crown and Bill Murray Day sash he was given to wear upon his entrance. I'm prepared to give it away. I'm prepared to give all this away. If you want any of this, you know, you just let me know, he said to an interviewer. Later on, ever so casual in his red pants, plaid shirt, beret, reportedly singing Prince's Raspberry Beret upon his entrance and being flanked by longtime pals director Ivan Reitman and Mitch Glazer, Billy did do some Q&A after Ghostbusters, as he did actually with the cast of St. Vincent during the festival. The only reason I've had the career life I've had is because someone told me secrets early on about life, Billy said. You have to remind yourself you can do the very best you can when you're relaxed, no matter what your job is. The more relaxed you are, the better. And Billy's made a career at this. And if you've hung with us through these Murray moments for this long, you've figured that out by now. That's sort of why I got into acting, he continued. I realized the more fun I had, the better I did, and I thought, well, that's the job I could be proud of. And I could go to work and say, no matter what my condition, no matter what my mood is, no matter what's going on in my life, if I relax myself and enjoy what I'm doing and have fun with it, then I can do that job pretty well. And that notion changed his life. It's made me better at what I do. I'm not the greatest at what I do or anything, but I really enjoy what I do. And it comes with lots of stuff along with it, but I'm a better person when I'm at work. My whole day is better because I'm working as hard as I can to be relaxed and sensitive, not joyous, but enjoying, just seeing that this is my opportunity right now. It's such a powerful reminder to realize. It's like an echo saying, this is it, Bill. You've got to remember. And if there's anyone who deserves to have a day recognized or every September 5th from here on out, it's Bill Murray. So thanks for establishing this Toronto Film Festival. And Bill's birthday is actually on September 21st. So to me, I just consider the whole month of September to be Bill Murray month, really. I like that notion. It's interesting that the Toronto Film Festival has been brought up multiple times in this episode because <laughs> um, it's it, the Toronto Film Festival, I swear, in the last three years has just magnified. And every movie that I read about, it's like it played at Toronto Film Festival and then got, you know, blew up from there, which I feel like Toronto's like what Sundance used to be. It's like Toronto's like the huge, the, the top festival now. Yeah, it's true. Like the past couple of years, it really has exploded. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. 
as always, of course. Did you have any final thoughts on Ginger Snaps before we uh, wrap up this uh, second installment of our Halloween month-long extravaganza? Um, I do, actually. It's just a tiny little factoid uh, that some research I went through revealed. I've already brought up X-Files once. Why not bring it up again? That both Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel um, have been in X-Files episodes from the same season, season five. Um, Emily Perkins was in an episode called All Souls, and Catherine Isabel was in an episode called Schizogeny. Um, she's also the daughter of uh, her her last name, born anyway, is not Isabel. It's Murray. No relation to Bill Murray. Um, but her father is uh, Graham Murray, who was an art director in X-Files. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, are you kidding me? That's her dad. Click on that. Thank you. Yeah, totally art director in X-Files. Uh, she was in an episode and I'm can't help but think somehow that's related. I have no way to verify that information, but X-Files was filmed in Vancouver and Ginger Snaps along with it. So many crossovers to X-Files as far as actors go. So way to go, Vancouver, Canada, using the same actors, giving people work. Um, anyway, check them out in those, in those episodes. I remember Emily Perkins saying that her first experience with using prosthetics was, um, in that episode of X-Files called All Souls. So check it out. What about you, Justin? Do you have any final thoughts that are as nerdy as mine? Maybe? No, no. Um, but, uh, my final thought isn't necessarily on ginger snaps, but on the werewolf genre, though. I love the werewolf genre, genre, you know, we were being pretty hard on it earlier in the beginning of our discussion. Um, kind of saying how generally it, you hear that it's a werewolf movie and you know, your, your guard is up. You're like, this probably isn't going to be a great movie. And, and there certainly wasn't a lot of great werewolf movies that came out post ginger snaps. Um, but I wanted to shine a light on a smaller budgeted film that I actually never heard of until maybe a couple months ago when I was digging around. And it's a movie that actually is under two separate titles. It came out in 2014. Um, it goes under the title Night of the Wolf, but you can also find it under the title Late Phases. And it's a pretty decent, modern, recent werewolf movie with uh, kind of a peculiar and interesting cast uh, with Ethan Embry, Last Starfighter's Lance Guest. Uh, we've got Tom Noonan in this one as well. A couple other uh, you know faces that you'll recognize from movies here and there, small parts. And it's a decent little uh, horror movie, uh, werewolf movie. And it's also uh, one of those werewolf movies where the uh, werewolf is on standing on two feet oh the old two feet werewolf yeah bringing back the old two feet the upright werewolf the old classic yeah yeah you told me about this and i really liked it it was one that when the credits rolled it was one that i exclaimed i like that one <laughs> like i was kind of surprised uh, how much i i did appreciate it so yeah thanks for telling me about that my expectations and my hopes, I never raise them very high when uh, <laughs> someone's like, hey, there's a werewolf movie, you know, but um, I always watch them because I'm like, oh, you know, I need to check it out. And this was one I honestly like, you know, hadn't heard nothing about it. And then it just it, this always happens. And this is why I feel like, you know, I, I waste time on social media and I hate that I do that. But occasionally um, it's worth it because I'll one of those like ridiculous like ad listings will be like five werewolf movies you've never heard of or seen. And sure <laughs> enough, you know, something good comes out of social media occasionally. 
it is kind of nice when social media or, you know, a, a rabbit hole search <laughs> that you do on Google pops up something that you end up really loving. And it doesn't happen that often, but in something like Late Phases, I think that's what I watched it under. What was the other title? Uh, the other title, Night of the Wolf. Okay. Sometimes you just find uh, a diamond in the rough. Yeah. Well, you know, social media is also good in the sense that we can promote this podcast and, and hopefully you can be aware of it. So if you are scrolling through social media, please locate us. We're under Don't Push Pause. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. If you like what you hear and you haven't heard other episodes, if you want to search for old episodes, you can find us at our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com where we also have a lot of merch for sale. A lot of good Halloween merch too. A lot of good stuff you could send somebody as a present for Halloween. We have a lot of horror movie uh, VHS boxes that we've we've made up that or check them out. The, the, the website will explain it. But uh, we do have one more Halloween episode coming up for you before we close out this month. It's a bonus episode, we like to call it. And that's George Romero's 1978 classic, zombie classic, Dawn of the Dead. Ooh, can't wait to revisit that one. Oh, since we brought up George Romero, can I throw in one quick thing? Sure. Um, that there was a brief moment not brief. He was involved in kind of the pre-production where George Romero was going to direct the TV miniseries of it. I think that would have been pretty cool. It would have been really cool. It conflicted with the remake of Night of the Living Dead in 1990. Well, there's going to be all kinds of little George Romero nuggets I'm going to find out over the next uh, few weeks. I know. I kind of can't wait to dive into this one. It's going to be so much fun. Well, uh, hopefully uh, you'll be tuning in. Uh, you won't have to wait two weeks this time. We'll uh, catch you next week for George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.